Welcome to the Organic Farm Stand, which comes to you the first and third Thursday of each month from 12 to 1. We are uh, very happy to have with us on the phone our itinerant farmer, our leader, our, our uh, icon, our avatar in the organic farming community, Guy Beardsley from the White Hills of Shelton. Guy, thank you so thank much. Thank you, sir. Thank you. That's a great introduction. <laughs> That's probably much more than I deserve. But, uh. <laughs> we'll, we'll find out. You're on your medal to uh, to meet those uh, those uh, that very high bar that I laid for you today. Well, you certainly great. Uh, great to talk about that, right? Yeah. So, um, well, uh, Chris Ferrio is not here, but uh, like Santa Claus, he may drop through uh, the roof any moment. So, uh, well, that's good. That's <laughs> good. I mean, let's hope Chris Chris shows up. That's great. Yeah, we we, we can hope for that. Uh, if I haven't mentioned it already, my name is Richard Hill. Uh, I uh, it's good to remind myself of that occasionally. So, um, it's also good to say it to the audience. Uh, so here we are, um, you know, smack dab at the early uh, part of February, and we are getting a sense that we actually have a winter brewing here. Um, Guy Beardsley, tell us the experience of the blizzard uh, that we had um, Monday night into Tuesday yeah, out, out there at the farm. Right. Well, it turned out to have about 15 inches, which is less than really what was forecast, and less than what uh, they got in northern New Jersey and even up in Danbury, which had over 20 inches, or about 20 inches. Anyway, uh, White Hills uh, occupies a position uh, probably uh, 600 feet in the above sea level, and uh, portions of the farm that you can see across Long Island Sound to Long Island. That, uh, that's, uh, which is uh, really a pleasant place to be when you are working on those fields, but to most of the fields you can't see that much. Nevertheless, it is, uh, it's good, and of course we now have uh, considerable snow on the ground, and snow we always consider as poor man's fertilizer. As the old farmers used to explain to me when I was just a little shaver and uh, <laughs> worrying about all the snow, they well, they say that's great though because look, uh, right now it's uh, all the things that are growing or will grow are nestled underneath this nice blanket of snow, and the temperature underneath that snow is uh, not much more than about 32 degrees. Uh, depending upon uh, how cold the ground was before it snowed. Nevertheless, uh, it's still a very uh, important part of uh, farming to have a, a good snow cover. I lo I'd love to have uh, keep about four inches on the ground all winter. Of course, we did not have anywhere near that in uh, 
in January. But nevertheless, we do have it now in February. And based upon the amount we've got, we're probably going to have most of it there is continuing in February. And in March, uh, when it uh, probably starts to de decrease a little bit, and then we can expect to see the tips of the garlic coming up out of the ground, but not much. I would not like to have that much before uh, about the middle of March. Mm. Nevertheless, now Richard, we're also going to have Vincent K on today, all right? Yeah, thanks for mentioning that. Yes, Vincent K, uh, who is with us the first Thursday of each month. He's the man who gives us the bee report, the honeybee report in uh, Connecticut. Um, he covers a lot of ground, and he always has a, an interesting adventure to talk about. I, I, I will be very interested to hear if he's out tromping through uh, <laughs> a foot and a half of snow in Hamden or something today. But uh, we'll find out. He may, found, he may have found some uh, more, um, uh, you know, uh, comf comfortable places to, to be to do his, uh, his business very this. adaptable, absolutely. Yeah, and it, it, and, it, it, and it has performed a great service on us. One of the things I uh, I hope to uh, talk to him about today, uh, or ask him questions about, is formic acid, uh, which the bees do produce, and uh, it's uh, an extremely important part of life. And uh, and I hadn't done. We we really haven't discussed uh, that aspect of the bees, uh, and I, you know, because the bees breathe into the flowers as well as the flowers breathe into the bees. At least this is what I'm getting out of the Stella Natura calendar uh, for both January and February. This fellow that uh, writes there. And I'm hopeful that Vincent has got a copy of that calendar where he can, uh, because on the January and February, the uh, little uh, the pages that opposite the calendar have uh, on every on every uh, month have a, a really interesting discussion of things that are appropriate to uh, organic uh, prop, uh, operations. And so, anyway, this is one of the things which. Uh, well, maybe we can get Vincent to talk about because most of these people just think bees are honey producers, and that's about it. They do pollinate flowers. They recognize that. That's important. But uh, there are also other things which I hadn't gotten the full impact on until I read both January and February in the Stella Natura calendars. And so we're going to have a further discussion on that, but probably not until uh, the second uh, part of uh, WPKN in March, because I think you said that we're going to have uh, discussions on the NOFA conference coming up uh, on the 18th. Yes. Right? As a matter of fact, I did communicate with Suzanne Dusing uh, over the past day or so, and she uh, did say that she is available and uh, very anxious to report on what the uh, Connecticut NOFA conference will be, do will be doing this uh this season, as it will be a virtual conference. But I'm wondering how much money they're going to be able to get out of that because they've usually depended upon, uh, you know, people uh, having to pay some money to get into the, get into it and put yeah. it, be part of it. That'll be a good question. I, I expect, you know, a lot of these uh, online um, Zoom things, meetings and conferences, lectures and other things like that. Th there is a fee. Uh, f for them, uh, for, or for example, musical concerts. Uh, 
they um, you, you pay a ten bucks or something like that, and then you get to watch it on your. Yeah, there's always uh, always some uh, always something useful to get out of it. Anyway, all right. So yeah, let's, uh, let's uh, check into some of the things which uh, are important to me. Uh, we, as I've explained in the past, uh, we have had five garlic cookers that we create black garlic in. Uh, they've been 110-volt systems uh, we got about five years ago. But every one of them is now somewhat uh, uh, unreliable. Uh, some of them uh, do not maintain the heat the way it's supposed to. And in some cases, the garlic is ready to eat. Uh, black garlic is ready to eat in three days. And other times, it takes much longer than that. But uh, at any rate, uh, we've stopped using them. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and then we went ahead and bought a new one. Now, that was, uh, and the new one came all wrapped up beautifully, uh, taking it apart and reading about it. This is a 220 system, and so uh, we have oh. to rewire <laughs> yeah, that's like a... our, our, our place to, to handle these, the, the new garlic uh, cookers, which, uh, you know, you just can't rewire the whole house or mm. rewire even for one thing uh, very that, that quickly. Uh, anyway, even though our electrician is is very good on it, he's also very busy. And anyway, we're uh, we don't have a capability for making black garlic at this moment, but uh, we do have the cooker. And as soon as we get to 20, maybe I can unplug the the uh, the dryer, the clothes dryer, <laughs> and plug this in. But uh, I think my, I think that my daughter would not say I think that was a good way to go. <laughs> well, how else would you use it, guy? Chris, good hey. to hear you. Yeah. Like I said, he he, dro he just dropped through, yeah, through dropped the ceiling. On. Yeah, some traffic issues. Yeah. Well, that's great. Okay. Well, anyway, uh, so much for the for the black garlic. I still do have a good bit of garlic uh, here, uh, although I'd say it probably we're down to about uh, 300 bulbs now, mm. and uh, most of them are not terribly big. But uh, they are available. In fact, I just broke into one this morning and uh, wanted to see, because I still keep them on the stalks to, in order to keep the... Uh, the little green sprout in the middle from growing. If you take the stalk off, that little green sprout starts to grow, and uh, it starts to absorb some of the nutrients, which are otherwise uh, what you want to eat when you eat the, the the raw garlic or even make into the black garlic. Anyway, uh, you can eat the little green stub, but keeping it on the stalk keeps that stub from growing. So that's the reason why we leave the the stalk on the on the garlic. Actually, we we're probably a little bit lazy because we don't take the roots off it either, and uh, I don't think the roots perform perform any function whatsoever. Nevertheless, there we are. And uh, now we were going to talk about catalogs. And, yeah, uh, couple and so, couple of know, issues actually. Catalogs. Mm. Now this gets gets a little bit touchy because when we talk about catalogs, we have to talk about names. And uh, we're not in the business of trying to push anything in particular. Nevertheless, if you want to talk about peach trees, uh, there are only a few catalogs that you can go to get good peach trees. And uh, you want to have a very good source. Well, we like to go, and is it all right for me to mention the name? Yeah. Actually, before you do that, let's, let's just uh, sort of set up the 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 framework a little bit on this 
when you are ordering uh, things like uh, the seed issue is is obvious. It's pretty obvious. You know, you're, you're ordering seeds and they're going to deliver them in, in packets and that kind of thing. And then you're going to plant them when you plant them. But when you're ordering uh, trees or, or, sh or fruit shrubs or uh, other things like that, uh, talk a little bit about how that the logistics of the way that works. Well, uh, what you do when you get the catalog, and that they'll tell you all you really need to know about that. But even before before you do that, you need to pre-plant pre-plan what you're going to do. And so there is uh, something if you're going to put trees, uh, like fr any fruit trees, down. Uh, a good way to help that tree start in its life cycle is to put down in the fall what they call fruit fall fruit tree planting mix planting mix mm -hmm. and uh, so that's uh, that's something you can get out of uh, at least fedco has a specific uh, uh line item for that and uh, you put that down in the fall or early winter and uh, where you're going to plant the tree you don't need to put a whole lot down but uh, put it in the area so that uh, it will include uh, about four to five feet around the center of where you're going to plant your your tree. And uh, it's, 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 it's a dry mix, so you sprinkle it around, and uh, you probably put it somewhere in the neighborhood of a, at least a cup of tree. Uh, now, they'll tell you to put a little bit more, but in my opinion, you don't need to put much more than kind of sprinkle a cup around, a couple around uh, the where you're going to plant the tree. Maybe two cups if uh, you, if your soil is not so good. You, of course, you need a soil test in order to know what you're going to plant it in, and uh, so you know those things are necessary before you go ahead and uh, get the tree. So then you order the tree, and then you try to plan to plant the tree sometime in the vicinity of April, I like to try to plant it around the, the Arbor Day, which is usually somewhere in the end of the third week in April. But uh, you can, if, you, if you can get into the ground before that, uh, it's, and it's convenient to do so, you could even dig the hole first mm -hmm. if you want. And uh, they'll tell you all about how that might. If they send it to you, before you want to plant it, then you've got to heal it into the, at least this is what we do, we heal it into the ground. We open up the ground and lay the tree roots in, because most of them, what you're going to get is called bare root tree stock. And uh, put the roots in and then cover the roots up with the soil, then uh, leave the tree kind of almost horizontal, but maybe just a little bit above so that the tree uh, leaf and branches are somewhat above the ground. So it's kind of angle it in and then, but it's it's important to cover the roots up to the point where they are not, the, not in the, getting any of the effects of the sun whatsoever because that's what will really hurt the, hurt the thing. So anyway, uh, if you get that and then when you get ready to plant it, they'll tell you how wide to make the hole and how deep to make the hole and if you have to trim off any of the uh any of the roots uh what how much to trim but mm. they will give you that i i know of no com company it's, it's in the business it won't tell you how much to trim and uh, give you very good guidelines on and so when you do plant it you come up with a with a pretty decent opportunity and reliability to have that tree grow. Uh, I know in the, in the blueberries, which is a little bit different, 
we always use a slurry of peat mix with water. Just that's a, and then when we dig the hole, we just fill the hole up with this slurry, which is a pretty heavy uh, slurry of uh, peat mix and water, and uh, just plant your blueberry bush right in that, and then uh, just cover it up with uh, with soil. And we have never, and I should probably never say that, but <laughs> we have never had any kind of problem in getting those blueberry bushes to grow. Uh, and I'm not sure that that's uh, that that's written out in any any one of the blueberry catalog. Nevertheless, that seems to work really well with us. Uh, and raspberries, uh, you don't need to go very deep in order to plant them up, but you got to have a good soil test before you start because they they would like to have uh, a pretty well into the sixes for the raspberries. Blueberries, on the other hand, really want a very acidic soil. That's the reason why you use a straight peat mix on that thing. Blackberries, they're pretty good. Uh, almost uh, ra all of raspberries, blackberries are pretty good. Now, I tried this past year in growing some gooseberries, and right now, they're, of course, they're covered under the snow, and uh, they never did seem to grow very much last year. They did put some leaf on, but uh, I, I probably didn't, well, this is my first effort at gooseberries, so I'm not really really sure. Maybe I'll, I better ask some further questions on my gooseberries, depending upon what they look like when the snow melts. We'll see how, how they've done it. They, they, I suspect they're going to survive, but I don't know how much they've, uh, they've grown or how much they're going to grow. We'll, have a give, we'll give that a shot. So, all right. So let's see. What do we see? What we got here? Uh, mm. let, let me you let know, let me give you one question to work on. And uh, while you're doing that, and Chris is, uh, you know, superintending here, uh, I'll try to get Vincent uh, lined up for us, so okay. we we can go to him when we're ready. Sure. But uh, my question has to do with uh, winter composting, and uh, oh, yes. so right. this is uh, an issue, right? Because uh, not all not all of us have uh, you know barns and and outbuildings where we can uh, you know discreetly pile up a, a bunch of stuff. So uh, maybe give us a, a couple of clues about that because you know the tendency is uh, uh, my tendency is anyway when it, when it gets to be uh, freezing pretty much you know in the low 30s or between 30 and 40 is not to throw my uh my compost my compostables into the bin where i where i have somewhat successfully uh been proceeding because i'm just afraid they're going to all just freeze up there and sit on the top and it's going to be hard to you know get them to uh to do anything uh productive during the winter time so uh could you maybe give us all a clue on that and uh well, we do, uh, uh, although right now I don't have that much compost, uh, but when we were getting compost on a daily basis, uh, we would establish an area and uh, throw some soil into it so that uh, it's not just bare ground that we're putting it on. Throw some soil into it, and so we would put the compost on top of the soil, 
and so that we could then take the front loader of the tractor and mix the soil and the compost uh, pretty quickly uh, so that the, the soil will have a tendency to help decompose the compost. Now, I, I've never used, but I know there is available, there are several mixes that people sell to help make compost, which helps to break down the materials you're putting into it. Uh, probably a, very, a, a reasonable idea if you're going to have a, a, a small amount of compost. But uh, uh, I, I haven't done that because I didn't think it was necessary. But I did throw, always mix the, ex, the existing soil in that so that I can uh, put, uh, mix the soil and the compost up oh, probably once a week. We do that, and uh, I think that that seems to make a pretty decent uh, mix. Uh, most of the soil compost or soil compostable material mix is probably two-thirds compostable mix with about one-third soil. Uh, that seems to work out pretty well. At least it has for me. And then uh, I put it in one place. Now, some people like to uh, have a... Uh, put a kind of a concrete uh, impermeable mix underneath everything, and that probably is okay too. Uh, obviously, it is, but uh, you're going to lose a little bit of your compost tea out of that. But uh, nevertheless, uh, we just use it on the bare ground, and then put soil there, and then and then mix the compost into the soil, and then keep mixing the soil and the compost up about once a week. Now, in the winter time, though, uh, or right now, for example, we are not in not in a position to mix uh, the snow with the compost, and I don't think that's necessary. So we kind of have to let that sit there, but you've already, as long as you were able to mix that soil and the compost together, uh, about a two-thirds to one-third ratio, as I've explained, then that seems to work out pretty well. And you can build it up there, and then uh, when you want to pull the compost out, you take the front loader of the tractor and just dig into it, lift it up, and away you go with uh, with your good compostable material. Uh, sometimes it may not be completely decomposed, but uh, it, it, that has never been a real problem for me because uh, it all seems to work out well. Uh, if you leave that area uh, for maybe three or four years, uh, what you're going to end up with is just soil. Uh, at least that's what it looks like. Now, that's, that, that stuff is not quite as good as the uh, when compost is, is mature because that is over-mature compost. So uh, we like to uh, use it so that we uh, have good compostable material that is pretty much decomposed. That's, uh, then you have to keep an eye on that. Uh, and so that's the best compost to put down. When you let it get, say, four or five years into the pile without having it uh, moved except turned over, uh, you're going to have uh, less of a – it's going to be great to put on grasses, uh, it will be fine to put on uh, for vegetables but uh, or fruit trees. Nevertheless, it has lost some of its nutrients because it's already been over-matured. At least that's uh, my, my thoughts on the subject. That's uh, a, a treatise you've just given <laughs> us, a, a dissertation. I think that answers a lot of questions. We will forget many of those answers, however, and we'll ask them, <laughs> ask them again. 
as the uh, winter progresses. Um, I do. I do have Vincent uh, on the phone now. Good show. Uh, so, hey, Vincent. Uh, I think the time is running pretty Me. well here. Um, Vincent K., who is a, the owner of Shows <laughs> Shows Swords <laughs> into Plowshares <laughs> Honey. Uh, he joins us the first Thursday of each month to give us an update on the world of honeybees and related topics. So, Vincent, what are you up to these days? With uh, we, were one, we were trying to picture if you were tromping around up in Woodbridge <laughs> in a foot and a half of snow today or whether you found uh, cozier digs, so to well, speak. Well, I think you're right. Uh, the snow has kept us uh, a little more homebound, and that's where we are today. Although we did... Uh, we did check some of the electric fencing uh, yesterday in Hamden, and uh, we drove uh, a slight way into the field, and they said, well, we're on top of a little knoll here, so let's stop while we're ahead. Mm. <laughs> and I said, we can use gravity to back out, and uh, but if we go over the knoll, we, we probably uh, would have gotten stuck. So we said we walked, and we took the dogs with us, and so we uh, trudged through the field and got out there, and the fences are fine. And that's one of the things that beekeepers can do now is is kind of maintain um, what you have because it's a dark, hungry time of the year out in the woods, and uh, nature knows it. And the bears in Connecticut, the black bears, um, rarely go into hibernation. It's just not that cold for a period of time where they're they're forced into to a hibernation state. Hmm. So they're around, and we see their tracks. Um, and so any beekeeper that lives, you know, in a fairly remote area, although right now bears are, are part of suburbia uh, <laughs> quite a bit, and uh, but you should check your electric fencing, um, whether it's hooked up to a, a barn or a house or a solar panel out in the woods, as we have. There's certain things, you, you know, you need to take the snow off the solar panels uh, so that they're charging batteries, et cetera, and then look for signs because, you know, the bear usually will um, – uh, circle the, the hives, the beehives, and the electric fence, and you can see the tracks going around and around. And, you know, they're annoyed. They're annoyed that they're getting <laughs> snapped occasionally by the fence. It doesn't hurt them, but it definitely keeps them off. But they'll challenge it occasionally, and hmm. um, occasionally we've got a real problem there that will either try to dig under or, hmm. you know, just blow right through it. So you've you got to maintain what you have and try to keep um, those fences working. Um with the snow that we've had, the 15 to 20 inches um, we have out in the out in the woods, it's um, it's good. But I, I think that there's enough solar uh, uh, sunlight now. It's not a dark period in the sense that we don't have sun. So some of that snow is going to melt away from the hives. The bees are inside the hives. They're in a cluster, and believe it or not, they're pretty active inside that hive. I mean, they're moving around and. Um, I think it's helpful to maybe move some of the snow away from the entrance so that it doesn't ice over so that they can um, have enough air going in. And, and even on a warm day, uh, even though there's snow on the ground, you'll see the bees, um, and I think we talked about this last time, but they'll go out and defecate. Into, you know, you'll see the brown spots on the snow, and then they'll go back in. And all winter long, they're consuming honey uh, and pollen. And uh, right now, the queen is kind of probably a little restless in the hive, but she's starting to lay eggs. And as she does, she's sort of um, keyed in by the light and how she knows this, who knows, because she never goes out of the hive, but they know somehow that the days are getting longer. And um, what she will do is lay more and more eggs as the days get longer and, and the light 
um, stimulates that or, or triggers that. And um, so what happens inside the hive is that they have to then incubate um, those eggs. It's just like a bird sit or a chicken sitting on its eggs. And um, I don't know if you've ever had the opportunity to put your hand underneath a chicken that's sitting on eggs, but it's very warm under there, and that fluffy feathering really retains the heat. Well, it's the same thing inside a beehive. It, um, the bees have to keep the inside of that hive 95, 96 degrees. Mm. Even in the dead of winter when it's zero out or 10 below zero, there'll be a section in the center of that cluster where the queen and those eggs are being incubated at a very high temperature. Thus, they consume a lot of food. So decisions were made in the fall um, to leave a certain amount of poundage, uh, a certain, you know, uh, amount of honey per hive, and we've done pretty good with that. The bees um, are not going to run out of honey anytime soon. But again, I think that the crucial part is toward the end of February, the beginning of March, when things, if you, if it's a windy, cold March, um, it really it plays havoc on them and, and the amount of food they can consume to keep that cluster warm. So beekeepers can check that food supply, and sometimes you can... Um, add a fondant or a sugar syrup, something to just get them through for a couple of weeks until things start to uh, blossom. Uh, the the maple, red maples in the swamps will start to blossom. And, um, you know, if they kind of a good day, they'll, they'll gather nectar from that. And other swamp flowers like um, uh, witch hazel and, and skunk cabbage, things like that, early bloomers, and then, of course, the dandelions in April. Mm-hmm. But um, right now it's just starting. Things are stirring inside the hive. And it's best not to open them up at all. If you, if you haven't checked for food up till now, then don't do it now because um, jostling the hive or uh, in any way having them break the cluster, uh, their mm. thermal cluster inside the hive would not would be detrimental to the hive's uh, survival. So I would not um, – it's hard to, to, to accept it, but you can't do anything right now. It's, it's just a, kind of a, a time to make plans uh, and uh, – Guy, I appreciate all the things you were talking about because it's, you know, it's a busy time for for farmers, um, you know, ordering seeds and and making plans. I mean, my helper John and I have been talking about this for a number of years, but I think we're going to build a scaffolding on the backside of our shop here in New Haven, and we're probably going to have five or six hives up high on the scaffolding, and um, that way they wouldn't be a, a, a bother to the neighbors. They'll be out of harm's way. And uh, we're going to try to get a honey crop right here in my backyard. So I think so. I think it'll work because um, Linden Street, which is solid linden trees up and down the, the street, produces a, a fabulous honey. And uh, there's so many trees uh, that the bees will just have their way with it. It's just it'll be great. <laughs> so we we come up with these little you know schemes and plans <laughs> to try to uh, probably get through the winter ourselves. But um, you know some of it will will come to to actuality or fruition. Uh, when the weather breaks, and otherwise we'll be pulling our hair out and running around. You know, we don't have enough time in the day to uh, do everything. But, um, yeah, the snow is, is good in a way. It, uh, it it insulates the hives just like it insulates the garlic and other things that are um, uh, perennials that, that uh, need that kind of uh, protection from the freezes and the, the thaws back and forth, which can really do a lot of damage to plants. And it does the same amount to uh, to critters out in the woods as well. Hey, Vincent, can I ask a question? 
Yes, and I know it's coming about the formic acid. <laughs> no, no, not quite yet. Uh, that, but the, the thought okay. always struck me that uh, do the bees recognize you as an individual that, that is not oh. there, there to you know there to help them out? Mm. I don't think so, Guy. I think that would be an anthropomorphism, which I'll leave to <laughs> other people to maybe ponder. But I know that they do have memories um, because, for instance, when um, sometimes in the summer, the skunks will scratch at the front of the hives and the bees come boiling out and the, the skunks just eat the bees. And um, you can tell that um, just by walking by certain hives and the reaction at the entrance, if they come boiling out just because you've walked by, well, something has created that antagonism. And it's more than likely a skunk or a raccoon at night that's been pestering them. And you'll often see the scratch marks on the ground and on the hive itself. And they do remember those things like that. Um, but as far as um, recognition of a uh, uh, person, I don't think so. Um, and I accept that as, 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 a, as a good thing, maybe. <laughs> well, good. good. I've, I've read about, <laughs> about individuals trying to make pets out of bees, and I would <laughs> think that would be a little difficult. <laughs> no, we have too many. I would have too many, uh, too many pets, <laughs> too many children, so to speak. So I, 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 I accept the fact that we our, our communications are limited. I think, um, you know, we're always looking to do better uh, for the bees. So in that sense, you know, there's there's uh, issues of empathy, I suppose, and kindness and and kind of respect out with nature um, to try to work with it and not force, you know, our our plots and our. Uh, our expectations on them so we we try to uh understand what's going on and what they need um and how they interact with each uh, season's weather patterns etc so every year it's slightly different i mean the bees um react just the way we react to you know long hot periods in the summer and you know wet periods in the spring and you know cer certain things need to be um recognized and looked at carefully and responded to Vincent, be, before we move to formic acid, which I, we're all very <laughs> anticipating with great, uh, great. I know nothing about lighting. <laughs> <laughs> all right, I'll give you, I'll give you a minute to get your, get your yeah. act together there. But yeah. I wanted to ask you, you when you talked about the, the the queen starting to lay eggs at this point, mm -hmm. and they're incubating, and w how does that process proceed, uh, and and what? When does it come to fruition? In other words, how long is that? When do the bees, the, the, the babies, start to actually hatch and uh, then have to be... And what happens from that point? Do they have well, to be given special uh, treatment? The, 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 the eggs, the eggs um, that the queen is laying, it's, it's kind of um, complex. You could probably do a, a college course on, on the queen just by herself, but just to... Not to oversimplify, but just to to say that the bees are constantly um, hatching and dying. Um, that's just its pattern. Uh, uh, I suppose everything that's alive is doing that in its own pattern. But for the honeybees, um, the queen has to make a decision based on um, whether she's going to lay a fertilized egg or an unfertilized egg. And um, just like uh, chickens will lay unfertilized eggs if there's no rooster, um, so she can lay an unfertilized egg, which is not for nothing because what it hatches, it does hatch into something. It hatches into a male bee or a drone. And the drones have one purpose. And so there's not any drones in the hive right now. 
However, she has eggs because she was born with eggs in her. And so as the season progresses, um, she will recognize the need for drones in the reproductive cycle of nature itself. And so she will, based on the shape of the cell, the comb that the worker bees have created, the drone cells are slightly larger. And as the cells are larger as well, and she'll crawl over the comb and she'll say, oh, here's a drone cell. I'm going to lay an unfertilized egg. And that's what she does. Then she'll move to a, another cell, which is. Did we lose you? Uh, Vincent. Uh, I think we lost him. Still, he's still up on the phone interface. Well, I'll tell you what. Let's see if he uh, magically reappears. And I will uh, set about to uh, get the other guest. No, <laughs> we don't have another. Oh, guest. we don't have another. Okay. <laughs> no, I, I'm going to see if we can. Uh, okay. I, in the meantime, uh, I can talk with Guy about things. Okay. So, so Guy, um, I wanted to ask you: uh, your compost? Do you keep it um, outside or like in like an enclosed environment? Yeah, I have. I have it outside. Okay. Now, uh, while this snow is to the point that it is, we do have a, a bucket that we'll put it in and uh, and have a top on that bucket and uh, move it out into an area which is, doesn't freeze, uh, but or even keep it in the kitchen. But uh, that's primarily what we do. And so that's a, you know, like that bucket is about a 10-gallon can, which, uh, of course, will hold considerable uh at this point, uh, the compost of materials. And so, uh, but it could be even more than that. It, it could be 20, 30 gallon can uh, or right. a big pan, whatever you might want to put it in, just so that, they, and then I would cover it. Uh, yeah. But uh, because sometimes it would start to smell bad or might provide some yeah. uh, sources of. of uh, of uh, things that you don't want anyway. Yeah, it's not uh, something that I could imagine having in my kitchen just because of the, the smell. Well, we have a small bucket in the kitchen, but uh, that, that has to be emptied every now and then. And so uh, that that's the extent of the compostable materials at this point. Uh, later on, we'll get it uh, from, uh, from, from uh, other sources and other people, too. Uh, to just bring it in, and uh, if it's all right, sometimes sometimes uh, you don't get the, the complete compost combustible materials if you're getting it from other people. They uh, some depend depending upon how it's made. Some people will throw things in that you don't want to yeah. have in there, and so you might have to go through it a little bit to make sure that uh, what you put in uh, your compost pile or your compost is completely compostable compostable. Right. Uh, so, but that's just a, a something that, that you and uh, whoever you're working with have to work out. Yeah. But that's that's pretty much what we do. All right. Let me uh, see. I think we've reconnected with Vincent. We don't know why he dropped off, but uh, so so it goes with uh, um, creaky old technology that we have here at the station. I'm here. I'm here. All right, Vincent. Great. Great that we could reconnect. So you were in the middle of explaining how the queen. Um, figures out what kind of eggs to lay and then what happens during this period where sh you're trying to keep a 95-degree temperature in that hive and keep the, the eggs alive. 
But uh, at what point do the eggs start to hatch? Well, that, that comes in, in uh, 21, 24 days later. Um, they'll go through a period of being eggs uh, in the bottom of the cells. You can see them. They look like little pieces of rice standing up on end. Hmm. And they um, are given food. Um, the bees uh, produce royal jelly in their pharyngeal glands and uh, deposit every, every egg gets a little bit of uh, royal jelly. And that's um, a genetic link, but also just uh, food. It's, it's uh, something they need. And they'll become larva, and they'll grow, and they'll, um, the eggs will hatch, and they'll become larva and get larger um, until they encompass maybe half the cell in depth. And then um, the, the, uh, the worker bees will cap them over, and they'll pupate and hatch um, a week or so later into uh, this honeybee. Mm. Uh, We're losing you, uh, Vincent. Uh, your signal is we is uh, breaking up. Is it possible oh, you could you move? Me? Move. Can you hear me now? Yes. Yes. Um, so in any event, the uh, the worker bees will um, uh, hatch out and they'll eat their way out of the combs, and um, they become uh, nurse bees, and um, that's their first job is to uh, take care of the other larva, uh, the young larva. Are we still there? Yeah. Yes. Okay, <laughs> so that's that's sort of the you know the simple uh, answer or the response to that question. Yeah, yeah, thank you. That was that was beautiful and graphic. So, uh, <laughs> so Vincent, I just wanted to ask you. Yes. So, what's the what do you call the other bees, not the drones that that, uh, um, you know are. Well, there's there's one queen bee. Yeah. Most of the worker bees are um, female genetically, but they can't lay eggs. Uh, well, they can, but that's a whole different story. Um, but they can't lay fertilized eggs. But, but the worker put... bees are genetically or anatomically um, uh, female, and the drones are the male bees. So there's three castes, the queen, the worker, the drone. Okay. And the, it's the drones that, that uh, fertilize the queen, is that correct? She goes on one mating flight in her life, and she will um, uh, get as much sperm as she can from numerous drones. They have their... Uh, business up there in, in the ether. They, they do it in midair. And hmm. uh, I suppose it's a wonderful uh, sight up there. But <laughs> they, uh, they, uh, they mate while in flight, and she'll, she'll do it uh, with numerous drones and then return, and she never leaves the hive after that. So she becomes a slave to laying eggs. So don't think that it's all just great as <laughs> the way, because I, I would assume it's not. <laughs> yeah, after that one blissful day. <laughs> yes. Yeah, she, don't get used to it. She has to hunker over. down. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's that's amazing. Um, yeah. So now. So we're, we're in the process now of, um, you know, ordering queen bees for the year, although we order them back in November. And we get those shipped usually from California sometimes Hawaii, because they have better climates. Um, we could raise queen bees here in Connecticut, but we would end up um, getting them fairly late in the season. Um, they would hatch, and we would um, have them mated um, and ready to go, but we, at a time when we really don't need them. So that's why we, we order them from other areas um, outside of Connecticut to get a head start on the season. Can we – I, I can't remember if you said – we should avoid the formic acid question or not, but that that sounded very interesting to me. Um, what do we know about it? Well, formic acid is um, 
not something that honeybees produce, although I think ants do. Um, ah, yes. But, I remember smelling uh, it. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And But honeybees, I know that beekeepers, we do not do this. Um, we treat for mites, but we don't use formic acid. Um, there are beekeepers that um, have machinery um, to vaporize formic acid and put that into the hives to kill the mites. Now, you have to do something because the mites are just a horrendous curse on beekeeping over the last 20 to 30 years. So if you don't do anything, the hives will all die. It's, it's 100% you know, accurate. So um, the use of formic acid um, is fairly new, but um, fairly um, successful from what, what we read about. We just uh, decided that it's a little too dangerous for us to work with it. And for the number of hives that we have, um, it's simpler to uh, use the, uh, the mite strips that we, we buy. And it, they're fairly effective. So, Interesting. Um, Vincent, as we sort of come, we, are, we have to be very um, sort of uh, fastidious today and careful about the time because we now have yep. an automated system here. And at exactly 12.55, uh, oh. the uh, uh, controls are going to be yanked from our hands, and, gotcha. uh, and an automated uh, system will take over to give the announcements. So, uh, But I do um, want to ask you a question regarding Black History Month. Um, yes. And um, there's, I, I, I have before me, actually, an article sent to me by Suzanne Dusing, a very interesting article about... Uh, African-American farmers, the challenges they face, their struggles and their stories, and I, I want to maybe read a little bit of that before we end today. But I, I, I want to ask you, uh, what is your sense of the involvement of black people in, in beekeeping uh, in our area or beyond? I mean, is, there's been an incredible decline in black farming in uh, this country since uh, in the past hundred years. I mean, it has is, is declined uh, ridiculously, uh, precipitously. Um, and I'll give the, that out that number as soon as I can find it in this piece here. But do, do you know any African-Americans who are beekeepers? Um, and, uh, you know, are you in any kind of communication with them? Or how, how might I we do find not. that? Um, in, in Connecticut, um there, uh, as you know, Connecticut's agriculture is limited. Uh, we've become very suburban, and um, I wouldn't say anti-agriculture, but certainly um, uh, there's less and less of it continuing as a tradition. Um, like most of the farming in the United States, people of color, and I would include Hispanics as well, um, I don't particularly know a black beekeeper or a person of color doing that, certainly in Connecticut. On the West Coast, yes, there are people that we do business with um, because the climate is more um, con conducive to beekeeping in general. But um, they are part of a huge migrant farm worker um, force which produces, maintains, and harvests the food that this country eats. And they have to be recognized as incredibly important people. Um, and just because we don't see... Um, uh, the faces on it all the time, it, it's happening. And if it's not, then we're going to have to buy food from outside of the country. Um, and so that that's the issue. Um, if you're going to be local and organic and have some control over your food supply, 
and how it's produced and the, the nutrition um, inherent within it, then I think you have to also recognize the people who work with it. Um, I forget the author's name offhand because I, I read it some time ago, but there's a book called The Color of Food, and it's all of the people who are washing the dishes in restaurants who are um, chefs and cooks, line cooks, um, people who are serving um, uh, customers. And it's an incredibly um, important thing to recognize, perhaps especially in this month, Black History Month, that um, this country would not uh, function without uh, the important role that people of color uh, have, have uh have in, in, in our food supply, especially. So I would just like to applaud them, but say to others um, that they really need to recognize uh, how important that role is, because without them, um, we're just uh, we're just not going to be the same. Well, I, that is an excellent uh, report, and I'm I'm going to try to track down that book because I I, I love the title, and I, it sounds like it's it's focusing in on on this uh, critical issue. And just to give you... It the, is. It's an incredible book, and it's a scathing report on um, the lack of recognition given to um, people of color um, in those um, very hardworking um, environments. And um, uh, so when you hear politicians talking about, um, you know, putting up walls at the borders and this and that, well, who is going to produce our food? I would like to know. Because I don't yeah. see a line of college students lining up to do that. <laughs> and, you know, I'm sorry to say, you know, maybe that would change, but um, it just is not happening. So, Well said. Yeah. Right. And, and they are our essential workers. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Vincent. Yes, Guy. Uh, there's there's uh, one article that uh, both the January and February edition of the Stella Natura calendar uh, is, uh, points out that, uh, I'm not sure he's right, but this fellow is, is Alex Tuchman, T-U-C-H-M-A-N, who writes mm -hmm. this thing. And uh, he says that uh, it's important for the bees to breathe into flowers and the flowers breathe into the bees. Now, that sounds a little a little uh, beyond most people's able to uh, appreciate but do you have any feeling any feeling for that it's pretty poetic but i mean there's certainly a symbiotic relationship there i mean they yeah. need the flowers need the bees and the bees need the flowers so you know to simplify it uh, you know absolutely um i don't know about you know the the again the issue of formic acid um but um i know that ants for sure produce it um, and it's part of um, that milky white substance that um, that their eggs uh, seem to kind of stick to. Um, and if you, you come across an ant nest, you can definitely smell the formic acid. So it's it's unmistakable. But I don't smell that ever in beehives. Yeah. And I know the larva and the royal jelly doesn't have formic acid as far as I know. Ah, so, okay, well, that's a... Uh... Uh, do you have access to the Stella Natura calendar? Not that I do you not. Need it, I do not, all, and but, I'd love uh, to have one. I'd have to um, get the address and find out a way to get one. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's uh, they've. They're, uh, this thing is put out by Camp Hill Village, Kimberton Hills, and uh, they have. 
uh, let's see, uh, there's, there's a phone, there's a www uh, thing, it's www.camphillkimberton.org, uh, but the phone number is 610-935-0300. Uh, but okay. Most people, actually, I, I tell you, if I had a, a good address for you, I could send you one of these calendars. Well, I'll tell I you can, what, uh, let's I, do that yeah. off air. And yeah. um, also just, um, I'm sure if you search for the Stella Nocturne calendar, uh, you know, through your browser, you'll, you'll, you'll find a way to connect with them. Um, I want to thank uh, you so much, Vincent, for the report. It's always, it's always rel uh, revelatory <laughs> and, and entertaining to the maximum. So uh, thank well, you so much. I hope much. so, and, and I'm looking forward to a season of working with bees, and uh, and uh, we'll, we'll be up to our elbows in it, so you better be ready. <laughs> That's great. We, well, Vincent, magnificent discussions. Really great. Well, thank you and as I well, Guy. You, you, you always much. are inspirational. I think we all do. The whole radio audience, but I don't know. We didn't give anybody a chance to call in <laughs> no, with any other questions. No. No, but, too late uh, for that now. Is, uh, so let me just uh, thank you, Guy, once again, and Chris Ferrio, myself, Richard Hill, for the Organic Farm Stand. We'll be back in two weeks and uh, with a report on the NOFA conference. And... Um, Probably uh, some more discussion about uh, the whole issue of black farming in, in the United States, which is in, in such serious decline, and it's a kind of a tragic situation that we really have to work on. Thank you so much for joining us, everybody. Stay tuned. Okay, good show. Thank, thank, you, thank you, Richard. Thank, thank you, Chris. Bye -bye thank okay, you, thanks, Vincent. Guy, and thanks, Vincent. Bye-bye. And the Bye companies now. are throwing us. You know what they're doing? They're throwing us a chemical bouquet. You are still tuned to WPK. This is the Gaiagram, environmental headlines from around a planet in crisis. More than 13,700 scientists from around the world signed an open letter recently calling for urgent measures to tackle the climate emergency. The new letter outlines a series of recommendations and policy proposals informed by a year of analyzing climate trends. The letter focuses on six interlocking areas for action, shifting energy production, curbing short-lived pollutants, investing in nature-based solutions, transforming food production, developing carbon-free economies, and limiting population growth. According to a recent study, banks have provided $1.7 trillion of financing to 40 companies in the plastics supply chain over nearly five years without imposing any requirements to tackle plastic pollution pouring into the world's rivers and oceans. With European and U.S. banks increasingly spurning the most polluting fossil fuel projects to help slow climate change, campaigners want lenders to take a similar approach to plastics by making loans conditional on measures to boost recycling. 
In 2020, Norway became the first country in the world where the sale of electric cars is higher than cars powered by petrol, diesel, and hybrid engines. According to Norway's Road Traffic Information Council, battery electric vehicles, BEVs, made up 54.3% of all new cars sold in the Scandinavian country in 2020. That's up from 42.4% in 2019 and a new worldwide record. Stretching almost 6,000 kilometers and crossing 12 states, the Great American Rail Trail will enable cyclists, hikers, and riders to traverse the entire United States. The multi-use trail will run from Washington, D.C. in the east to 